Please remain standing for the reading of God's word. Be from the 83rd Psalm. A Psalm of Asaph. O God, do not keep silence. Do not hold your peace or be still, O God, for behold, your enemies make an uproar. Those who hate you have raised their heads. They lay crafty plans against your people. They consult together against you, against your treasured ones. They say, come, let us wipe them out as a nation. Let the name of Israel be remembered no more. For they conspire with one accord. Against you they make a covenant. The tents of Edom and the Ishmaelites of Moab and the Hagrites, Gabal and Ammon and Amalek, Philistia and the inhabitants of Tyre, Asher also has joined them. They are the strong arm of the children of Lot. Do to them as you did to Midian, as to Sisera and Jabin at the river Kishon, who were destroyed at Endor, who became dung for the ground. Make their nobles like Oreb and Zeb, all their princes like Zeba and Zalmunna, who said, Let us take possession for ourselves the pastures of God. O oh my God, make them like whirling dust, like chaff before the wind, as fire consumes the forest, as the flame sets the mountains ablaze. So may you pursue them with your tempest and terrify them with your hurricane. Fill their faces with shame, that they may seek your name, O Lord. Let them be put to shame and dismayed forever. Let them perish in disgrace, that they may know that you alone, whose name is the Lord, are the most high over all the earth. This is the word of God. Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Almighty God, as we come here and approach your word, we recognize what serious words these are, what a serious message. We pray that we would approach this as we approach all of the scripture with, with reverence and with hearts that believe. Teach us from this and teach us to be more faithful as your people. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. I hope all of you were able to get a hold of the handout that goes with this message today. Full color, suitable for framing, if you need it. Uh, if you don't have one, maybe someone near you will let you look at theirs. You can even uh, take a picture of it with your phone if you need to, and uh, it may help uh, with some of what's going to happen or be unexplained in this psalm. Over 80 years ago, on December 7th, 1941, a day that will live in infamy, the United States of America was suddenly and deliberately attacked by naval and air forces of the Empire of Japan. For those of you that grew up in the days whenever I grew up, all of the older people 
would tell stories of where they were when they first heard that message. They told about that Sunday, about listening to the radio, about hearing about it. We still remember it as Pearl Harbor Day. It still remains one of the worst defeats the United States has ever suffered in a war. People across the land were in shock and fear. And unlike today, where we all know where Hawaii is, at that time it was a territory of the United States. It was not all that well known. Somewhat like if we mention Wake Island or Guam, we might have a vague idea of where they are, but not all that familiar. People spent that day listening closely to their radios for updates. People were scared, even hysterical. People were paranoid, even irrational. But there's one person in the world who was very happy that day when he got the news. And this was not one of the leaders of the countries that we would be fighting a war against for the next four years, but rather this was someone who considered himself one of the best, greatest admirers of America and a friend of this country. It was Prime Minister, British Prime Minister Winston Churchill, who told us his reaction of hearing about Pearl Harbor in this way. He said, no American would think wrong of me if I proclaim that to have the United States on our side was to me the greatest joy. So we had won after all. Even though the war was still ahead, still years ahead, he saw it at that point as like, we've now won. His country had been through two years of nothing but defeat. He went on to say how long the war would last or in what fashion it would end, no man could tell. Many disasters, immeasurable cost and tribulations lay ahead, but there was no more doubt about the end. I went to bed and slept the sleep of the saved and thankful. How often do you go to sleep at night with the sleep of the saved and thankful? You know, on the one hand, sleep is a very serious medical issue for some people. Maybe some people in here, you've had to go to the doctor to try to get something to help you sleep. I had a boy in class this year who swore to me that he had sleep problems. He was like, you know, Mr. House, I'll go to bed at 10 o'clock, you know, but I can't go to sleep. But for some reason or another, when, once he got into my class, he was able to curl up on a floor and fall asleep. <laughs> I should have patented whatever I do and have that uh, works so well. But some people do have serious problems with sleep. Sometimes it's physical pains that interrupt sleep. Those of you who suffer from back aches and other kinds of aches, you know that sometimes uh, lying in bed all night is uh, not a pleasant thing. It's a, it's a very painful thing. Sometimes people have lots of stresses and worries and anxieties that keep them from sleeping. But whether we are asleep or awake, we're all faced with a world, meaning this huge planet, this world that we live in, uh, and... Uh, we're, we're faced not only with that huge world, all of those world problems, we're also uh, faced with our own little world, meaning our own personal lives, where we are anxious, we're scared, we're hurting, we're in danger, we're distressed, we're depressed, we're defeated, we're struggling. Sometimes we just say we're falling apart. 
Or if you're not dealing with that, others would look on and say, you're just living in denial. You don't see what's there facing you. Well, as Christians, we believe in God who can and will rescue us from all of his and our enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And sometimes, you know, we tell each other that whenever we're talking about these stresses, like, well, you know, God, it will take care of us. We're a people of faith who look at all those troubles. Whether we're talking about the big world troubles that's going on all across the globe and in our country, or that personal world, that little world that we live in, and we recognize God is in control, God knows what we're facing, God has promised to take care of us. But here's the problem we run into. Knowing the end of the story is one thing. But knowing how the plot unfolds is another. And we know that God will rescue us. We know God is in control. But on the day by day, on that night lying asleep when your back hurts or you've got troubles galore or whatever else, you don't really see that or experience that end result. You know it's there. But it's out there somewhere, and it's not happening. Psalm 83 is a psalm for troubled times. It's a psalm that's packed with history and, and what were then current events. This is not a pleasant uh, message here. It's not, you know, like the little children's prayer of now lay me down to sleep and everything is just really all quiet. This is a prayer where it's a cry. God, do not keep silence. You know, sometimes I'm sure I'm in the only family where this happens, but my wife will be talking and she'll say, are you listening to me? And I'm like, yes, yes, I, I, I heard what you're saying. And whenever we're praying to God, and, you know, I'm, I know I'm trying to make a connection here between a husband not listening and the way God works. So carry it as far as you need to. But whenever we're praying to God, it's like, God, are you listening? We're not hearing any answers. Oh, God, do not keep silence. Don't, do not hold your peace or be still, O oh God. This passage begins with this crying out to help for God. Verses 1 through 8 are a description of what, of what the people were facing. It was a national political crisis. The exact time as to what was going on and when this is happening is not known. Uh, the, uh, you know, a, lot of, uh, a lot of Bible scholars say, well, uh, it seems very close to what's described in 2 Chronicles chapter 20 uh, during the time of King Jehoshaphat. You know, and if you want to read that passage later and make a comparison, I'm like, yes, it certainly fits with that. Uh, but in you know, some parts of the puzzle don't necessarily... Uh, fit there, it could have been some one of many times where uh, the people of God were under attack, surrounded by enemies. And much of this psalm is filled with names and references of what would have then been current events and uh, what was, uh, was then going on, but it's confusing to us. So whenever you come across all of these uh, names in here, all of these uh, unusual and unfamiliar names and people, uh, Edom, Ishmaelites, Moab, Hagrites, Gabal, Ammon, Amalek, Philistia, Tyre, Asher, and then these uh, references to uh, uh, Zalmunna and Zeb and, and others along the way. It's just like, I, what in the world are they talking about? 
You know, it's like sometimes uh, whenever you go to the doctor and he explains what's wrong with you and what he's going to prescribe, and then you have to just come back and you have to say something like, what are you talking about? Am I going to die and is that going to cure me? And so, uh, you know, and then, you know, he will perhaps then go and explain exactly what it is and that's wrong and what he's going to give to cure you. So there's some of that that's going on here where it's a little bit confusing uh, or just, you know, unfamiliar to us. So we want to uh, think about these and uh, we're going to get into some of those places and uh, understand a little bit more about it. But I want to come back to something I've already said. And that is, as you're reading this psalm, and maybe all of the psalms, uh, and then particularly the ones that seem to be talking about the cultural and political events of the time, you need to always be thinking of two different worlds. You have what, you know, what I've called the big world, and then there is the little world. And the big world is all of what's going on on the national news, on planet Earth, all of the trends, all of the problems, everything uh, there. Uh, all of those cultural things that are happening, all of the uh, moral issues that we're facing, political events, economic events, whatever might or might not be affecting the environment, whatever is going on socially. The big bad world that's out there as it currently exists. All the terrible tragedies, uh, things like this uh, implosion of this uh, submarine this past week with five people in it, a war between Ukraine and Russia that's been going on, which was had the added feature the last few days of, a, of an insurgency group within Russia trying to take over their uh, economic problems going on in our country, uh, political problems that we see, social problems, attack on God's order, a moral breakdown, perversions, false gods, unbelief, all kinds of things. All of those hand-wringing things uh, that you hear about on the news that you can do nothing about. Even those of you who yell at the news while it's being played. It's like you're yelling at, uh, you're yelling at a TV screen, but we feel like there's nothing we can do about it. And some of you deal with that big world in this way, like, I'm just not going to think about that because I can't do anything about it, and it's too big. And I've got all of these other things, and that's this little world that's over here, and that's you. What's going on with you? What's happening with your family? What's happening in your situation? Every problem that is pressing on your mind and on your life right now, it may be conditions in your family, marriage conditions, children, dealing with, uh, with parents, uh, dealing with strife in the family, tensions, all kinds of things that relate uh, to your family. It may be health issues that you're dealing with. It may be economic issues. My wife doesn't spend a lot of time talking about the inflation rate and things like that until she's looking at uh, some particular bill and I hear her say something like, oh, this has gone up. This inflation is really, is really hurting. And that's the way we often deal with it. It's like, oh, well, unemployment is, uh, is up. Uh, uh, prices are, are up. Uh, all this is up. And all that's kind of like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But then you look at a bill that you've got that last year was 100 and now it's 200. It's like, whoa, here's the real problem right here. It's that little world. Sometimes these problems are temporary. Sometimes they're chronic and ongoing. And there are people in this room who have battled personal problems for years all of their lives 
Some of us deal with problems that uh, show up at some point and then uh, they're gone. Uh, we hope. We want them to be gone. But we're that, it's that little world that so often uh, has us consumed. I know over the last couple of days, even though there was you know, all of these world problems, the, uh, the tragedy of that uh, submarine or whatever was going on in Russia, all that big world over there I kept pushing aside because I got into poison ivy. And I was like, in the little world, the top news story was, this is driving me crazy. And that's where we are. So let's look a little bit at what was going on as you're thinking through it. You know, we'll come back to this whole idea of the big world and its problems, the little world, both are real, both existing, going on at the same time. Judah's surrounded by a number of enemy nations and groups that are, that are conspiring against them. Verses 5 through 8. For they conspire with one accord. Against you they make a covenant. The tents of Edom and the Ishmaelites, Moab and the Hagrites, Gabal and Ammon and Amalek, Philistia with the inhabitants of Tyre. Asher has joined them. They are the strong arm of the children of Lot. A series of ten enemies. And if you look at this map that you have, uh, or if you have access to it, <clears throat> we're talking about... Uh, uh, in particular, this prayer is coming from people who were most likely down here in this green area of Judah, uh, sometimes on semi-good relations with the far-from-faithful kingdom of Israel to the north. But all of these enemies that have conspired are all around them. And some of them you see on this map, down at the very bottom you see Edom. Long-distant kinfolks going all the way back to uh, Esau. And then you have uh, Moab uh, located just right above that, and then Ammon, and then some of the others. They're not all named right here, but you go over to the um, have to get my over to the left side, and you'll see Philistia, the Philistines, that bunch of uh, bad guys, uh, and there they are. They've joined in, and even the city of Tyre up there, part of Phoenicia. Uh, that has oftentimes been a trading partner with uh, Judah, but at this point in time, it's like, oh, we're going to join your enemies. Uh, you know, we're going to kick you while you're down. And so over, and some of these groups are, you know, just appear to be maybe more like just uh, roving bands, you know, the Ishmaelites and others. Uh, but it all adds up to from, you know, every side, you've got these enemies all around them, all types of enemies. And even though they don't all worship the same God, even though they're not all kissing cousins and they don't all like each other and all that, they find they have something in common. We want to go against Judah. We want to take them down. Verses 4 and 5, they say, Come, let us wipe them out as a nation. Let the name of Israel be remembered no more. They conspire with one accord against you. They make a covenant. So it is a real conspiracy going on. It is a covenant. You know, the Old Testament is full of covenants, and this is a covenant, a binding agreement uh, between all of the bad guys. Let's put aside our differences. Let's put aside the different gods we worship. Let's all just get together on what we all agree on, and that is Israel. The people of God are going down. You know, together we can take them out. The only nation in the world at that time that had a true covenant relationship with God 
was this little kingdom down there in green. You know, you just imagine the whole globe, that big world that we've talked about, and just one little speck on the globe is faithful to God. Now, that may, you know, there were some faithful believers up in Israel. There were a few people that had picked up uh, bits and pieces of, of the truth and had scattered elsewhere. But by and large, the whole world hinged on this little, small piece of geography. And that little small piece of geography was faced with annihilation. And if they had gone under, humanly speaking, we wouldn't be here today. Our, our existence as the people of God depended upon their survival. You know, it was like when uh, Herod uh, went out uh, uh, to the area with the, with the intent of find that baby that has been born and kill him. Everything hinged on Joseph getting Mary and the baby out of there. And at this point in history, everything hinged on the people of God calling upon God to save them. So they're not going to have a quiet prayer meeting. It was like, Lord, we just ask if you'd save us. If you could. No, these are people crying out to God. And whenever we look at the big world around us, we've got to do that. We've got to cry out to God. There are so many statistics, so many trends, so many current events that are, if they go the way they have been going, they will destroy civilization. And you look at your little world where you're existing day by day and you've tried everything and whatever problem you're facing and if God doesn't intervene, you're not going to make it. It's the same situation you see in Narnia in the opening chapters of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. The way things are going is like the, the white witch is going to uh, rule this whole thing. It's all going down. There's nothing this bunch of uh, Pevensey kids are going to be able to do about it. One of them's already defected at the beginning of the story. And then look at these brave creatures that are uh, standing against her. Beavers. A fawn, which is a guy that's half goat and half man. And it's like, that's, those are the good guys. They're trying to save this whole kingdom. It's the same situation you see in Middle Earth in the Lord of the Rings. Sauron and Saruman are consolidating all the forces of evil. And what Mordor is, is what Middle Earth is going to be. It was the same situation that Winston Churchill faced in World War II. You look at the maps at that time, and Germany had uh, basically conquered all of continental Europe. The only places he hadn't conquered were there saying something like, oh, don't, just don't invade us and we won't do anything against you. We'll just stay quiet and help you out as best we can. All of continental Europe, a huge swath of Russia, nearly all of North Africa, all under the control of Nazi Germany and Italy. German U-boats control the seas. Britain had a great navy, but uh, ships were going down right and left. The Luftwaffe was threatening to control the air. And then off on the other side of the world, Japan was uh, going every, every direction imaginable. China, Indonesia, Hong Kong, the Philippines, they ended up conquering 
geographically a wider area of the world than the Germans had conquered. Much of the Pacific, that's what the world looked like. That's so often what it looks like. Like, oh my goodness, this whole thing is going down. So how do you deal with this? When everything, everything is a flood and a fire and a storm and nothing seems to be working in your favor. That's what I love about, uh, as I started looking at this, is that Asaph, who we really don't know much about, who composed several of the psalms here, uh, makes use of the two primary subjects I teach, history and literature. And he does that teaching us that our prayer should be a combination of history and literature. He begins with, uh, with the history lesson. He says, you know, the people were, you know, he instructs the people to pray this. Do to them as you did to Midian, as to Sisera and Jabin at the river Kishon, who were destroyed at Endor, who became dung for the ground. Make their nobles like Oreb and Zeb, and all their princes like Zeba and Zalmunna, uh, who said, let us take possession for ourselves of the pasture of God. Like, oh my goodness, we're in this horrible crisis. We're surrounded by enemies. And Asaph says... Okay, I've got an answer. Let's study history. Now, he picks in particular the book of Judges, which I think sometimes we misread. Book of Judges, rated R for violence. And people in the book of Judges, God's people, are really, put it nicely, stupid. They forget what God has done over and over and over again. Unlike us, who never forget. (laughs) And they fall apart, and when things get really bad, they call upon God, and God says, well, I tell you what, I'm going to raise up what in most cases is a misfit who is going to come along here and rescue you. You know, like a lot of those guys who were judges were just kind of like, he's the guy who's going to rescue us? Samson? who can't even have a sensible relationship with any woman anywhere without it going bad. But over and over again, God says, I'm going to pick someone and I'm going to raise them up and we are going to give those enemies of God a whipping. You got to have some history lessons here. And, you know, and sometimes we misread that book as just like, uh, okay, it's just people turning bad over and over and over again. Now, that's, that part is true, but the real key to that book is God wins. Every time, God can take the most unexpected, unfit person, raise them up as a judge, whip the enemies. The guy can take the jawbone of a donkey and go and take out a whole regiment of bad guys. Over and over again, it's the teaching of God rules, God wins, they lose. I saw a t-shirt recently that said, God wins. I've read the final chapter. I kind of liked it, but as I thought about it uh, some more, I thought that's actually a little bit of bad theology and uh, bad Bible reading. You know, as though the whole time you're reading through the Bible, like, oh my goodness, it's so bad, so bad, so bad. And then whenever you finally get to the last chapter or two of Revelation, it's like, okay, good, okay, we won. No, it's not that way. 
It's, it's victories all along the way, step by step by step. That's the final victory, but that's not the first victory. That's not the first sign that God is going to win. Now, history teaches this same lesson over and over again. The Christian faith ends up on the burn pile literally time and time again. Quote from G.K. Chesterton. He said, at least five times with the Aryan and the Albigensian, with the humanist skeptic after Voltaire and after Darwin, the faith has to all appearance gone to the dogs. Kids, I don't know if you hear that phrase, but sometimes if somebody's just, you know, they're just really falling into bad company and all that, we say something like, they've just gone to the dogs. And, uh, and what Chesterton says here is, through the years, through the centuries, you have all these enemies of God that have come along and it looks like, you know, oh my goodness, well, you know, there goes the church. It's gone to the dogs. <laughs> After Darwin, who can even believe Christianity anymore? I think it was Bultmann that said, how can we have electric lights and still believe the Bible? Well, I think they actually make it a little bit easier because it's kind of hard to see without them. But it's like, oh, it's gone to the dogs. And then this great Chesterton follow-up. In each of these five cases, it was the dog that died. Every perverse assault on the family today is on a collision course with reality, meaning that it's on a collision course with God's order. Hey, just think about uh, these, some of the enemies over here in the big world that we think, oh my goodness, this is just going to ruin us. The people who are saying a man can get pregnant, they are going to ruin us. Or that two men can be married to each other, or two women can be married to each other, or that babies are aliens that can be aborted, and on and on and on. Just recently in this church, we've over the past few weeks, we've had announcements of births of babies, two families, a man and a woman. That's the winning side. The other side is like, that's your program for victory? Pregnant men? That dog is all red hit. Somebody needs to shoot it, put it out of its misery. That's big world history. It's what's being taught here each Sunday morning. Every enemy, every heresy, every worldview that comes along that uh, you know comes along to push the church off the main track. All those things fall to the wayside. And what we see happen uh, instead is that, uh, once again, God and God's people are in the victory square. Now, sometimes, you know, if you ever look at boxing, uh, you know, you see at the, end of the ring, at the end of the match where the two guys are standing there and the referee holds one of them's arm up, and maybe the guy whose arm is being held up looks pretty bad. I mean, it's like, uh, you know, he's, he doesn't look too... Uh, pert at that moment well, he's been battered pretty hard in winning but he's still the winner and sometimes the church comes out of these situations uh, battered and, and bruised but at the end of every match God wins God's truth wins that's the history lesson that's being taught the same lesson in your own life you're in terrible shape right now, maybe physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, economically. 
Like you're just like, oh my goodness, everything's just falling apart. But do you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you put your faith in Christ? The big task has been taken care of. Christ has removed your sin. Jesus died for you on the cross. Now I know if I ever have one of those near-death experiences, what always seems like worse-than-death experiences of a stomach virus, and you're just throwing up and all that, if you just come and say something like, Ben, which is most important, having your sins removed or feeling good right now? Don't ask me that question at that moment because I'm not a sound theologian at that point. It was like, oh, anything. Just, this, is, this, is, this is terrible. And I could go on, you know, dental work, whatever, just any number of those things are like that. But, you know, whatever it is, Christ has already taken care of the big problem. Everything else is a mopping up operation. It's cleaning up the damage. Now, it's going to still hurt and be difficult and whatever else, but the lesson of your history is that Christ has dealt with the main problem. And you have to think back on your life to see that. Whatever you're going through, you just have to go back and say, let me rewind this and replay this just a little bit. And if I had not been in Christ, it would be much worse now. Whatever is going on, I would have these problems are worse and be lost in my sin. And that's why we have to go back and remember our own history. If I had not believed, I wouldn't, have, I wouldn't even be here right now. In the psalm, Asaph asked God to deliver them as he did uh, from the, the Midianites in Judges 4. And this was the case where God used the, uh, the prophetess Deborah and another woman by the name of Jael to literally nail their enemy to the ground. Uh, you know, like this is where the phrase comes from. Somebody nailed it, and it comes from Jael who nailed it. One of God's enemies. That's not really where the phrase came from, but it should have. I was like, I'm gonna, since Barak uh, did not do such a very good job as a leader, I'm going to let some of the women take over and uh, just take care of this guy. Big, strong leader, big, strong army and all that. And the next thing you know, he thinks he's going to get, you know, he, get, he drinks a, a, a cup of warm milk, takes an out, and wakes up with a spike run through his head. Didn't really wake up. And then comes the uh, story of Gideon. <clears throat> uh, seven, Judges 7, 25. And they captured the two princes of, of Midian, Oreb and Zeb. They killed Oreb at the rock of Oreb, and Zeb they killed at the winepress of Zeb. I just think that's kind of funny in a way. It's like uh, there's a rock, it's called the rock of, uh, of Oreb, and it's like, you know, oh, well, you know, here's a good place. This is a rock named after you. We'll smash you on this rock. And then uh, here's Zeb, who's like, uh, oh, you got a winepress? <laughs> Guess who's going to get crushed today? And they pursued Midian, and they brought the heads of Oreb and Zeb to Gideon across the Jordan. All the boys in this class listen. This is the kind of story boys love. This is just like, you know, when you post something and get pictures after you've been deer hunting or squirrel hunting and all that. And you've got all, you know, people always like that. They're holding up those horns and that deer's tongue is out and it's bleeding and all that. And they've got a big smile. Because it's like, I don't know, God has geared you guys to 
kind of have a liking for our blood and entrails and beheading. Here comes two of God's worst enemies, and here comes somebody who's like, Gideon, here are the enemies now. And he's holding these nasty things, and it's like, um, you know, holding them by the head of their hair, and that's all that's left of them. What happens to God's enemies? By the way, kids, you'll also like this. Back over in verse 10, it talks about some of those enemies, and it says that they became dung for the ground. Poo-poo. Oh, yeah, you know what's going to happen to you bad guys? You know what God's going to turn you into? Now, don't say that to your brother or your neighbor kids or whatever else, whatever, you know. But it's like just recognize that junior high kind of boy that we never outgrow. Like, there it is in the Bible. Let's go on to the next account here. Uh, this, is, this is just more trouble with the Midianites. Uh, this comes from Judges, I believe, chapter 8, verse 20. So he said to Jether, this is Gideon talking after this, uh, this enemy has been defeated. Uh, and he says to Jether, his firstborn, rise and kill them. But the young man did not draw his sword because he was afraid because he was still a young man. Like a long day of battle and all that, they've, they've captured the two leaders of the bad guys. And Gideon is there. He's got his young son. He's trading him in. And so like, hey, boy, uh, go ahead and dispatch him. This kid's been in battle and all that, but he's just kind of like, Dad, do I have to? You know, he really didn't want to do that. And then these guys say something really stupid. Rise yourself and fall on us. For as the man is, so is his strength. You don't say that to Gideon. <laughs> as the man is, so is his strength. Okay, here goes. And he kills them. And then just kind of like, well, you know, they no longer have any use for these nice necklaces on their camels. So he takes those. That's history lesson. All through the Bible. All through church history. And in your own personal life. The history lesson, God wins. Those who are against God lose. So it's now time to study some poetry and some poetic devices. The prayer continues in verse 13. Oh my God, make them like whirling dust, like shaft before the wind. As the fire consumes the forest, as the flame sets the mountains ablaze, so may you pursue them with your tempest and terrify them with your hurricane. This is what we would call in, uh, in poetry uh, a simile. It's where you compare uh, something using the words like or as. So it's like, make them like whirling dust. I mean, it's like whirling dust is uh, not any, I mean, it's like, oh, that dust is going to get on everything. Uh, but it's not like it's some big threatening enemy. It's just dust. Uh, chaff before the wind. That's whenever you'd throw the weed up in the, in the air and uh, the wind would come along and take all the, the hull or the shells away from it. Leave the good part. Just, you know, just the stuff that's fluttering along there. Kids, if you've ever found a dandelion, uh, it's like they're the neatest thing. So you pick it and you blow on it and it just goes everywhere. Now, it's not necessarily a great thing that you want in your yard and it's, gonna, it's going to end up uh, growing more of them and all that. But, hey, it just means there's more of them. You can go out there and pick and blow. Okay? It's like that's what happens to the enemies. They're gone. Where were they? I thought it was a big problem. Similes that God, that, that's used of God. You know, God, do it like this. And then here come the metaphors. God's wrath and deliverance is described as a tempest and a storm. ESV says, 
a hurricane. So you have all of these images of God used wind and fire and storms to destroy those things, to take those things away that are, that are taking us down. Poetic language is what we use for special events, for ceremonies and other things like that. You know, we had a family wedding recently, and a wedding is just filled with all kinds of things. It's like, well, what's the purpose of this and that? And uh, like a lot of these things are, are symbols. They're, they're metaphors. They are pictures of what we're doing. We're going to be taking the Lord's Supper today, which is a picture of our salvation. It is a recreation of the body and the blood of Christ uh, that we are experiencing. It's using an image. It's, you know, the, the bread is like the body of Christ. The, the drink, the grape juice, the wine is like the blood of Christ. God is a God who loves poetic images. God loves poetry. God loves the richness of language. And in some sense, when Babel happened... God had to have some kind of a thought of, yeah, down the road, I'm going to hear my name praised in 800 different languages or a thousand or however many they are. All of those languages, all of the richness of all the poetic images praising God. Muster up all the languages, all the language, all the images, all that you can when you're praying to God. God loves to hear that. It strengthens your heart. Our ultimate desire, God wins, his enemies perish. Verse 16, fill their faces with shame that they may seek your name, O Lord. Let them be put to shame and dismayed forever. Let them perish in disgrace that they may know that you alone whose name is the Lord, are the most high over all the earth. And that is our prayer. God wins. His enemies and our enemies crumble. As Ryan said earlier, this is an imprecatory psalm. It's, it's calling upon God to unleash his power. It's like a loaded gun. You have to be careful how you handle it. Don't just pick it up, this psalm up, and start firing at, at will. It has a purpose. You know, in other words, don't pray imprecatory psalms to somebody who gets your parking place. Okay? Uh, no, don't, you know, if you're playing a sports game and somebody, uh, you know, strikes you out, don't use an imprecatory psalm against them. You know, Lord, defeat your enemies, bring your, you know, no. That's, this is a loaded gun. We have to be careful with this. And you have to just recognize that uh, sometimes uh, uh, when we're talking about the enemies, we are the enemy. And it's, uh, you know, God needing to bring us to account. So handle it uh, carefully. But read, pray, and sing psalms such as this. Let's go to the quote from H.C. Um, uh, Leopold where he says, In the face of such a situation, there is something commendable about looking to God for the total overthrow of an enemy that threatens the very existence of God's people and trusting that he alone has the power to effect such a result. Should Israel have prayed for the success of the enemy? No, he doesn't answer that, but it's obvious. No, we don't pray for the success of those who are doing wrong. Is it not correct to assume that, that God desires to bring about the defeat of Israel's foe? Yes. 
And whenever we look at the big world and we look at all of those things that stand against God, we are correct to pray for God to bring an end to all of those things. And when we look at the things that are destroying our lives, it is right for us to pray for God to deliver us from those evils. And then the words in all caps, just mainly because I need to hear this over and over again. Why not pray intensely for that which you well know God also wants? Not a meek, well, Lord, if it's your will, I pray that righteousness would... Uh, it is God's will. Lord, if it's your will, we pray that sinners would be saved. God does will the salvation of sinners. God does will your sanctification, your deliverance, your growth in Him. God wins. His enemies lose. Our prayer for ourselves, for the big world, for our little world, is that we all would know that God, whose name alone is the most high over all the earth, Rule over us, protect and defend us, and raise us up in him. Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Almighty God, we confess that we are so defeatist. Uh, it, all it takes is just one little uh, tremor, and we are ready to cast away all hope and give up and doubt everything that you promise. So we pray for a renewed faith. We pray for this message from Asaph about all of those ten enemies who just don't even, the places don't even exist anymore. You vanished them forever. And the prayers of the people who are praying there, we're praying those same prayers today. Help us to do more so. Thank you for the victory that is in Jesus Christ. We pray it for all of those big world problems. Every crisis in this world, we pray for a for you to intervene and bring righteousness to bear for everything that's going on in our personal lives. We pray for you to intervene and bring righteousness again and deliverance. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.